This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome. As many of you know, my name is Richard Hecht, and I'm the chair of the program committee of the Herman P. and Sophia Taubman Endowed Jewish Studies Symposia. Leonard Wallach and I have worked together now, he says 17 years, but I think it's 19, and we're going to have this debate whether it's 17 or 19, but it's been a long time. And um, our speaker this afternoon, Rabbi David Volpe, has been very, very high um, on the list of people we have wanted for many years to bring here to Santa Barbara, and I am delighted to be able to introduce him to you. I'm not going to restate the many accomplishments of Rabbi David Volpe, um, which are summarized, of course, in your program brochure. Our time with Rabbi Wolpe is much too precious. Our committee, I think, wanted to invite him shortly after the New York Times published a summary of a dialogue between him and the late Christopher Hitchens, which had taken place in 2008 at Temple Emmanuel in New York City, shortly after the publication of Hitchens' God is Not Great and Rabbi Volpe's uh, Why Faith Matters. The dialogue between these two intellectuals was crackling with uh, extraordinary depth, and it is precisely the kind of depth that an intellectual like Rabbi Volpe brings to subjects of Judaism and who the Jews are, their history and culture, which uh, was the reason why the committee wanted to bring him. Today, as you know, Rabbi Volpe will speak on David, one of the most complex and mysterious and fascinating figures of the Hebrew Bible. In the early pages of his book, he cites a single verse from the first book of Samuel where David sends ten of his young men to a certain wealthy man in the region of the Carmel by the name of Naval, who after they greet this character uh, in the name of David, Naval replies to them, Mi David mi ben Yishai. Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? Rabbi Volpe writes, in the early pages of his book, David confounds simplicities. Other ancient figures have stories, powerful ones, but they are fragments of a character uh, marked by tendentiousness and heavy symbolism. David is the first person in history whose tale is complete and vital laced with passions, savagery, hesitation, betrayal, charisma, faith, family, the rich canvas of a large life. David's failings are not slight or endearing. David, as Rabbi Volpe uh, suggests, David is a character who is fraught with contradictions, with conflicts, who is consumed by political and human passions. We could have no better speaker, I believe, to guide us through this perplexing character than Rabbi Volpe. Please now welcome Rabbi David Volpe.
Yes? No. Am I using this or I'm using that? I was told I'm using this and I shouldn't use that. Apparently, you can't have a better guide through these complexities. Um, so, the rabbi and the doctor are talking. How do you know it's a joke? <laughs> the doctor says, you know, rabbi, sometimes I treat my patients for nothing. The rabbi thinks for a minute, he goes, I do that. The doctor said, no, no, I subvent their prescriptions if I know that they can't afford it because that way they don't have to pay anything over the official fee. The rabbi thinks for a minute, he goes, I do that. And the doctor's now getting frustrated. He goes, you know, rabbi, when I do surgery, sometimes I only charge the hospital and I don't charge the patient at all because I know if I didn't do that, they wouldn't be able to get this surgery that they need. The rabbi says, I do that. And now the doctor's at his wit's end. He goes, look, Rabbi, with all due respect, you don't have patients, you don't write prescriptions, and you certainly don't do surgery. And the rabbi goes, no, 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 I meant I say nice things about myself, too. <laughs> so in addition to the fact that I'd like to thank Dr. Hecht for sparing me the task of saying nice things about myself, since he said all those nice things about me, I want you to know that actually when you write a book about your namesake, even if you have no immediate relation, you always think, is this about me? You write sentences like, David is like this. And then you stop and you wonder, is David like this? And so every biography, and I think not only with the same name, but every biography is also a kind of exploration of autobiography. And I'm going to return to that when I get to the end and talk about why it is that David gets to be the progenitor of the Messiah. Because there are a lot of characters in the Bible. And if you had to pick someone who was going to be the person from whom the Messiah must come, and that's true in the Hebrew Bible, as well as in the New Testament, I'm not sure that any of us would pick David for reasons that will become clear. And one of the two questions that most interested me in writing this book, which was more a psychological study of the story of David than anything else, was why does David get to be this character? The second thing that I was curious about is David's name means beloved. And David is by far the most loved character in the Hebrew Bible. Again and again, people are said to love David. Saul, who is his sworn enemy and tries to kill him on multiple occasions, loves David. Saul's daughter, Michal, loves David. Saul's son, Jonathan, loves David. We'll get back to that. Saul's son, Jonathan, loves David. The people of Israel love David. And finally, it says David is a man after God's own heart. But he never says that David loves anyone else. When David gives his beautiful eulogy for Jonathan, it says, Your love was dearer to me than the love of women. But he never says, And mine for you. 
And so one of the questions I also wanted to ask is, what's the emotional makeup? I'm not saying David didn't love, but I wanted to know or to understand as best you could at the range of, after all, thousands of years from a story that passed through many hands before it reached us. And because the story is so rich and so full, and it really is the first biography in human history that feels like a biography. I mean, if you read through the Bible, you read about Moses and you read about Abraham, but then you come to David and you say, this is a human being. This is a full-blooded portrait of a person. Because it is, I want to just divide up into a couple of categories and talk about those, and then maybe during question and answer, we'll have a chance to discuss more. So let me start with David's family. All of us, after all, are products of the home from which we came. And David, and part of the ambivalence of David's character, is right at the beginning, the origin of his appearance on the world stage. Samuel is the high priest. And God comes to Samuel and says, the first king, Saul, is a failure. I want you to go off to the house of Jesse the Bethlehemite, and there you will find my new king. So Samuel goes off to the house of Jesse. I should say, um, depending on how reverent this crowd is, uh, but university crowds are not usually very reverent. I found that, by the way, when I used to debate with Christopher Hitchens at universities. Um, I did better in synagogues. So, but, but um, when Samuel is about to go off and anoint the new king, he says to God, you know, if Saul, that is the first king, Here's about this. He's going to kill me. I don't want to do this. And God says to him, well, just tell everyone you're going off to sacrifice. In other words, God tells Samuel to lie. Which I always thought was kind of interesting that that's how David gets anointed in this cloud of mild deception, which may have something to do with what happens to him later. But Samuel goes off and he comes to the house of Jesse and he says, basically, present your kids. And Jesse presents his firstborn son, whose name is Eliav. And he's a tall, handsome, strapping figure of a man. And Samuel gets ready to anoint him. And God comes to Samuel and says, pay no attention to his appearance or to his stature. I've rejected him. Because I don't see people the way you do. Adam yirel enayim. People see with their eyes. In other words, people only look at what's visible. Va'adonai yirel alevav. But God sees into the heart. Samuel says, next, please. And the next one comes out, and on and on and on, all seven sons, which, if you know the Bible or mythology, seven is the perfect number. In Irish mythology, it's the seventh son of a seventh son that's supposed to be the savior. But none of the seven is the new king. And finally, Samuel says, are you sure you don't have any more kids? And Jesse says, oh, yeah, there's a little one out back tending the sheep. So Samuel says, well, bring him in. And he brings him in, and David is young and ruddy-cheeked, and God comes to Samuel and says, anoint him. This is the one. Now realize that David is a child, not only, we don't know his mother's name, through the whole Tanakh, through the whole Bible, David's mother is not mentioned, but his own father forgets his existence. Right? It's like when the company comes, I mean, it's Samuel after all, he's the high priest of Israel. It's like the President of the United States comes to your house and you forget to introduce him to one of your kids. 
You introduce them to all the others. Can you imagine the complex that would give the kid? You introduce them to all the others, but you're just, I don't know, I just forgot, David. I'm so sorry. And yet, David is the chosen one. And the second story, which, by the way, happens after of David's introduction. There are three stories of David's introduction. I'll tell you all three really quickly. One of them you know well. The second story of David's introduction is is the story of Goliath, where David goes to Goliath. By the way, the only reason he's there is because his father says to him, I want you to bring food to your older brothers. Otherwise, he wouldn't be there because his older brothers are there fighting the Philistines. David goes to bring food. And, and by the way, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but, the, but when David goes to bring food, you know what his older brother says to him? What are you doing here? And in the time-honored fashion of younger brothers, as a younger brother, I can say this, of younger brothers everywhere, he goes, I wasn't doing anything wrong. Why are you bothering me? But before that, what happens is Goliath comes before Israel and he says, look, rather than fighting this terrible war, Whoever can beat me, if you beat me, will be your slaves. If I beat your champion, you'll be our slaves. By the way, they violate that because obviously Goliath loses and they still don't become their slaves. But nobody wants to take on Goliath. And David hears this. And Saul is looking around trying to find someone who will challenge Goliath. Now, in the Bible, the first thing that comes out of someone's mouth is what characterizes them as a person, okay? You're always looking for the first statement. It's true all the time, often in movies and in books, but it is certainly true in the Bible. So what's the first thing that comes out of David's mouth? The first thing he says is, what will be given to the man who defeats Goliath? In other words, what do I get? That's David's first state. Then he goes on to say, because he's insulted the God of Israel and he's impious and so on. That's not the first thing he says. The first thing he says is, okay, if I do this, what's Saul going to give me? And we see there that sort of doubleness of David, which runs all through his character. On the one hand, he's always on the lookout for the main chance. On the other hand, there's this element of piety. And I'll give you a couple other examples. And how you see him whether pious or opportunistic, depends a lot on who you are. Um, So he says to Saul, okay, I'll take Goliath on, and I'll condense the story a little bit. But you realize that that story is largely misread because David has an advantage. He's got a long-range weapon. Goliath has this spear and David has a slingshot. And they have measured in modern Israel, leave it to the scientists, they have measured how fast and how accurately Bedouin shepherds can sling a stone from their slingshot. Because, look, they're out in the fields all day long. There's not a lot to do, (laughs) right? The wireless reception is poor. So all they can do is they they fling stones at things. And they can do it fast enough to, to maim or kill and with tremendous accuracy. So it's not surprising that David could do this. He obviously knocks down Goliath, and then he kills him with his own sword. He beheads him. The third story of David's introduction, by the way, is that Saul, who... Saul has these moods, very deep, dark, depressed moods, and then also he has moods of tremendous energy, um, And I'm not a psychiatrist, and it's thousands of years ago, and after all, we don't even know what goes on in our own heads, much less 
the heads of those who are closest to us. As I was writing this biography, I kept thinking of what I once heard a biographer say. She said, how well could your best friend describe your love life? And when you realize that even your best friend would get your love life wrong, she said, every time you read a biography, keep that in mind. Right? Don't give too much confidence to the biographers. Having said that, that I'm not a psychiatrist who was thousands of years ago and no one knows anything, Saul was a manic depressive. Um, <laughs> just, I just want to say, that's all. Um, if he wasn't, he did a very convincing imitation. Um, because at times he loves David and is embracing him, and then two seconds later he's trying to kill him. Um, so he's bipolar in some weird way that we not, might not understand, but he's also jealous of David, and he should be jealous of David because the first thing that happens is after David's first foray into battle, the women of Israel, and that's going to be, by the way, just to fast forward, that's going to be my next category, are women and David. Um, the women of Israel start saying Saul has killed thousands, but David has killed tens of thousands. In other words, uh, Saul's losing the people. So he decides he's going to marry David to his daughter, and she will be a snare to him. He tries first with the older daughter and then with the second daughter. And this is how he's going to get him. He says, you can marry my daughter, but in order to do that, you have to bring me the foreskins of 100 Philistines. It's a, a lovely bridal gift. I think you can agree. Um, I don't know if you register for that or... but. <laughs> But David, David says, David agrees, and he goes out, and he gets 200 foreskins. Where Joseph Heller, I didn't include this line in the book, maybe I should have, but it seemed a little too irreverent for the kind of book I was writing. Joseph Heller, in his book, God Knows, said this is when David realized the foreskins were better removed from dead Philistines. Um, so it's not a bad line, but... Um, Once he's done that, though, you realize what has happened. Saul is the king. When Saul dies, who's going to take over from him? If he's the king, then his son, that is Jonathan. Jonathan falls in love with David. Whether that has homosexual implications or not, I will come to in a minute. But Jonathan falls in love with David. So here there are two ways of seeing David. He comes into the house of the king. We know that he's already been anointed the new king. But the only way he could be king is if, A, Saul and his son die, and David obviously is not going to kill Saul and he's not going to kill Jonathan, because that would make it impossible for him to be king once Israel knew that he killed the king or his son, or that Saul's son Jonathan would willingly abdicate to David. So he comes into the house and miraculously, not only does he end up marrying the king's daughter, but he becomes best friends with the king's son, who agrees to make him king next. So you can see this one of two ways. Either this is an unbelievably Machiavellian individual with great charisma who manages to get people to love him for his own purposes, or this is an extraordinary man who people love, and he didn't do it with calculation. That's just who he is. Um, or some combination of both. But this happens over and over and over again in David's life. Uh, let me just, a brief excursion on David and Jonathan, and then I'll get to David and women. The short answer to whether David and Jonathan were homosexual lovers is it's impossible to know. 
And even though there are two verses in particular that suggest a romantic relationship, we also have to remember that men spoke very romantically of each other until modern times. If you look at Shakespeare, the way that men speak to each other with no sexual implication is in very warm and romantic language. So it's possible, but it's certainly not certain. Um, and, and again, I think this has a little bit more to do with the various agendas, pro or con, of the people who read it than with proof either way. So either way you want to go, I think you have sufficient warrant in the text to argue that way. Um, and, uh, and I'll leave it at that. One of the things, it's too easy to think of David as this charismatic narcissist who gets everybody to do what he wants, in part because David has a quality that most raging narcissists actually don't have, which is he listens. He doesn't only listen to flatter you. He listens and changes what he's going to do based on the advice of people, especially the advice of women, which, as you might imagine, in the biblical world is not very common. But with the slight exception of calling Samuel up from the dead, which I'm not going to get to today, I think, but there are no supernatural miracles in the book of David. No sun standing still, no seas parting. Every time David needs a miracle, it seems as though he actually finds a woman who either directs him in the right way or does something to save him. And this happens over and over and over again. So Michal saves his life. She saves him from her own father. Abigail saves him from committing a terrible crime of killing her husband. She gives the longest speech by a woman in the Bible, not poetry but prose, and by the way, for trivia buffs, is the only woman in the Bible who is called intelligent before she's called beautiful. Abigail. Um, Michal, by the way, is the only woman in the Bible who is said to love a man, if you don't include Song of Songs, which is kind of ambiguous on that. So, so David has these very powerful and enduring relationships with women, including, by the way, women of no stature. There's a, a, a woman called the wise woman of Tekoa who comes to him basically off the street and tells him this very moving parable and gets him to call back his son Absalom when otherwise he wasn't going to do it. So when we talk about David as a psalmist and whether David wrote the psalms is another complicated question. But when we talk about David as a psalmist and a musician, the point is there's something artistic and receptive and real about his soul. And it's too easy to just think of him as a power broker who managed to be king. One more woman that I think uh, has to be mentioned. Not, there are others in David's story. But David is on top of the world. He's king. Saul and Jonathan have died. He is un virtually unopposed. And, uh, and it's, the chapter begins, uh, it was spring, the time when kings go to war. And David was walking around the palace. This is the way the Bible sometimes subtly criticizes people. Right? It says the kings go to war. David's troops are out at war. But what's he doing? He's walking around the palace. And David's walking on the roof of the palace, and he spots this woman bathing naked. Now, again, here's another gestalt test for you, 
or Rorschach test, one of those, one of the Gestalt tests where you see, you know, it this way, and then you blink and you see it that way, and the question is, can you see both? That is, did Batsheva know that the king walked at two o'clock every afternoon on, on the roof, and so that would be a good time to be seen nude bathing? Or was this a function of David's power play? And, and Batsheva, by the way, is identified as the daughter of and the husband of. In other words, she is taken. There's no way to mistake this woman as somebody who's available for the king to have a liaison with. But it is clear whoever the instigating party or whether there's more than one instigating party, it's clear who the power is with. The power's with David. And David summons her and she comes and he, she, he sleeps with her and she gets pregnant. And now he's got a problem. Because if it's known that the king impregnated the wife of one of his soldiers who's out there fighting, he's going to look very bad. So he decides to summon her husband, Uriah, back home and tells him as he comes back, he comes home from the front, which, by the way, when I say the front, the front is like, you know, I don't know where the alumni place is. That's where the front is in Israel. I mean, we're not talking about hundreds of miles away. The Philistines and the, and the Israelites fought on close quarters all over the country, and it was, it was not a big, it was almost like those pictures where you see of the Civil War, of people bringing their lunch baskets, you know, and watching the fighting down below. So he comes back home, and David says to him, go home and sleep with your wife. And Uriah, who, by the way, is a Hittite, he's not even an Israelite. In other words, he's one of those tribes that live among Israel and fights for them, but is not ethnically an Israelite. He says, how could I do that? When all of my compatriots are out there fighting, I could never go home and act like everything was fine and sleep with my wife. Which shows like a painful, ironic distance between the immorality of the king of Israel and this foot soldier who's a Hittite. So what does David do? He gets him drunk. And he still won't. He sends him home, but instead of going home, he sleeps on the foot of the, uh, the porch of the palace instead. Now, you've got to remember also, if David could see Bathsheba bathing, Uriah can't live that far away. He's got to be able to, to go to his house fairly easily, but he won't go home because he's principled. And so David commits the most cynical act of cruelty of anyone in the Bible. He writes a letter. It says, put this soldier in the front and make sure he dies. And he gives it to Uriah and says, give this to the commander Joab. And Uriah dutifully carries the letter containing his own sort of suicide note and gives it to Joab, who puts him in the front, and he gets killed. After a suitable mourning period, David calls Bathsheba into the palace. And then comes this scene with Nathan, who's the prophet. Nathan comes to David and he says, in your kingdom, there was a rich man who had many sheep and there was a poor man who had one. And the rich man was going to entertain people and instead of taking from his own flock, he took the one beloved sheep of the poor man and slaughtered it. What should happen to such a man? And David says... Such a man deserves to die. At which point Nathan says, you are the man. It's extraordinarily dramatic 
and chilling and powerful. And this is David's, one of his moments of greatness because of what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, off with his head. Because remember, he's king. He can do whatever he wants. Saul killed all these priests, and that isn't why he lost the kingship. But David instead weeps and tears his clothes and mourns and repents and acknowledges his own sinfulness. And when he does that, there's all sorts of fallout. The child dies of their first union. The second child is born. His name is Solomon. Um, but but it's, it's a powerful, redemptive moment for David, and it shows that David still sees himself as subordinate to God, which is something that I'll return to in just a minute um, after I get to, uh, to David's death. Um, we're speeding along here. Uh, but it's a, it's a full story. Um, you know, uh, it's a full story, and you can read it. You can, I mean, yes, you are more than welcome to read it in my book, and I hope you will, but, but there are other places that tell the story, too. Um, in fact, when uh, I, I was, we were talking about the fact that Warner Brothers optioned the book, and they may or may not make I mean, they're working on a movie, but whether it ever happens, who knows, because who knows. But, but after, the, after they had optioned the book, and after the deal was done, it was signed for, I said to one of the producers, you do know that you can open the drawer in any hotel room in America, right? And read the same, so you know this, right? Um, I just wanted to check, and they said, yes, we know, but we actually, we'd like to have a property that we can, you know, work from. I said, look, I, I'm good. I just wanted to, you know, for my own conscience sake. Well, it was for my conscience sake, I would have said it before they signed the deal, but still. Um, so, so, David is now old. And the book is divided up into two broad sections. The first half, the first book of Samuel, he really spends most of his time running from Saul, who's a sort of surrogate father. The second half of the book, he spends most of it running from Absalom, who's his son who rebels against him. So in David's life, he has on, on each side, and it goes back to, the, to a family dynamic, he, he's an unsuccessful, he has an unsuccessful relationship with his father, both real and also surrogate father, and a wildly unsuccessful relationship, to say the least, with his son, um, Avshalom, whom he seems deeply to mourn. But that is, uh, that is a question when Avshalom's rebellion is finally put down and, is, and he is killed. And now David's old, and he's made something of a wreckage of his life, but it's very rare for kings in the ancient world to be able to die in their beds. And David does get to do that. He's in his bed. He's old. He can't keep himself warm. So if you're wondering, like, with all the, with all the trouble that David went through of running from Saul and running from Absalom, so what good is it to be king? Let me just tell you. David is old and can't keep warm, and so they summon a virgin, Abishag the Shunammite, to lay with him and keep him warm which is probably something that they do for kings that they don't do for commoners, I'm guessing. Um, And it says explicitly that he doesn't have sex with her, which is a way of the text signaling, and I mean this literally, that David is impotent, which means that he's impotent. That is, he's impotent physically, and therefore he can't be the kind of king and the kind of leader that Israel needs. 
So <clears throat> he passes succession to Solomon. But there is a beautiful, at the very end of the story, and then I want to get to the, uh, to the questions I posed at the beginning. At the very end of the story, there's a beautiful nuance in the words that the rabbis pick up that the first chapter of the book of Kings says, Melech David Zaken Babayamim, which means King David was old, advanced in years. One chapter later, it says, Vayikravu Yemei David Lamut, David was dying. Now listen to the difference. King David is old, but David is dying. So the rabbis say, look, when you're facing death, you don't face it as a king. You don't face it as a professional. You don't face it with any of the masks that you wear while you're alive. You just face it as David. You have to come, you have to confront who you are. And one of our tasks is not only to do that for ourselves, but also I felt like my task was to try to confront this character for who he was. For all the sometimes awful things that he did and all the greatness that he displayed. And, and I think that the part of the answer to the question was that it's clear to me that in some ways David loves, but his love, the loves of a king are not the same as the loves of a commoner. Um, that is, nothing that he does as a human being is, only, is a private act. It all has implications far beyond himself. So that the kind of selfless, thoughtless love that is in some ways an ideal is just not available to him, as is not available to anybody who's in that sort of position. Not, certainly not if you're king. And why does he get to be the progenitor of the Messiah? So... The usual reasons given, which are good reasons, I mean, the fact that I'm proposing another one doesn't mean these aren't right or good, is for all the accomplishments that David does, he founds the city of Jerusalem, which after all, like Washington, D.C., is between the north and the south. It's, it's, a, it's a focal point um, of, the, of the nation that allows it to stay together. He unites the north and the south, because you may or may not know this, but the northern kingdom and southern kingdom are really only united under David and Solomon, and never again, never again, until the modern state of Israel. In 722, they split apart after Solomon. In 722, the Assyrians come and destroy the northern kingdom. The ten tribes scatter until they go to Utah. And then... And other than that, are never seen again. <laughs> so he, he keeps the, the country together. He founds Jerusalem. He's never suspected of idolatry, which almost every ancient Israelite king at one time or another slips into. He has a consistent and close relationship with God. And, all those, and he eliminates the Philistine threat. And all those things alone could make him important. But I, for me, they don't add up to enough to make him a quasi-messianic figure. Now remember, for the Jewish tradition, the Messiah is a human being, not son of God, not supernatural. The Messiah is a human being who will be a great leader that will lead Israel and, by extension, the world to a better place, but as a person. So I thought of it this way. What does it mean when God says that David is a man after my own heart? When you look at David's life, 
you realize that in the compass of the ancient world, he is everything. He's a warrior. He's a king. He's a son. He's a brother. He's a father. He's a husband. He's a lover. He's an adulterer. He's a murderer. He's a savior. He's a poet. He's a musician. You can go on and on and on. He has the largest life and the largest soul, good and bad, dark and bright, of anybody that we read about in the ancient world. In other words, David sums up as much of the human experience as it is possible to sum up in one character. And if you're a man after God's own heart, what does that mean? Well, if God creates everything... That means just as it says in a verse in Isaiah, Oseh shalom uvarei ra, God creates peace and makes evil. In other words, if you're going to be a man after God's own heart, you have to be as large a man with as great an experience as a human being can have. So maybe that's why David gets to be the progenitor of the Messiah, precisely because not only is he not perfect, he's deeply flawed, but he's also deeply great. And he takes all the characteristics of the human being and carries them to an extreme, almost to an absolute. And so in that, David is, for all that we read about him and know about him, the most human of us all. And all of us can find pieces of ourselves in this extraordinary figure. Thank you. Okay, so. We um, have a few minutes where we can ask questions of Rabbi Volpe. Um, And what we ask you to do, and I think I'd like to have the lights up a little bit because of the microphones here. You remember that. um, There really are. There There are about 350. You want to do it again? Okay, good. So please remember that we have microphones on stage right, stage left. We'd like you to use those microphones so that we can record your questions uh, for the University of California Television uh, that we hope that this uh, uh, important talk by David Volpe will become part of our library. So who wants to start off? You make it clear, at least to me, that um, inerrancy of the Bible is not something of which you take much stock. So when, when I hear people say, this is what the Bible means, I'm led to believe that we really don't know what the Bible means. A vast gulf between I know exactly what it means and we don't know what it means, right? Um, for example, I don't know exactly what your question means, but I know what it means. So the same thing here, which is, do I believe that the Bible records accurately all the historical events that it reports? No, I don't think there's any chance of that. And I think anyone who believes that has to avoid history in order to believe it. But is there corroboration of many historical events? And are there reasons to believe that many things in the David story would be true? Yeah, I'll give you an example or two. First of all, until about, I don't know, 20 years ago, there was an argument about whether there was a David. 
But now it's pretty sure and pretty widely agreed, in part because they found uh, an inscription from, 20, from 200 years after David by a non-Jewish king that said something about Beit David, the house of David. So that's pretty dispositive. That, who David was, what he did, we don't know. But the other thing is, it's true that when, when the Bible reports dialogue, do we know that David said this? There, of course, there's no way of proving that. But a lot of the stories of David are sort of apologias. That is, you might think, okay, let me give you an example. So Ish-bosheth is Saul's son. And he rules in the north for two years after Saul dies while David's ruling in the south. Obviously, if David's going to be the king of Israel, what does he have to do? He has to kill Ishbosheth, right? One way or another. But David can't kill Ishbosheth because he's Saul's son. And that means that he has a lot of you know, street cred in the north that he's the son of the first king. So what happens is what happens at least five or six times in the David story. I'm not exaggerating. Which is, an enemy of David is killed. Two guys kill Ishbosheth. They then come to David and say, we have killed Ishbosheth, expecting David to be happy about it. David is furious, says, how could you raise your hands against Saul's son? Kill them. And they're slain. Now, there are two ways to see this. One is... David has just effectively not only killed his enemy, but killed the only people that know that he was killing his enemy. Or David is so principled, he doesn't like the fact that these people were killing his enemy. But either way you see it, the text is arguing for the second. It's saying David was really upset. Now, you don't do that. That is, you don't write a story that could reflect badly on your character and say why it doesn't really reflect badly if the character never existed. It just doesn't make sense. Right? It's only if people are going around saying, you know, David was really responsible for killing that Ishbosheth, that you need to say, no, 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 he really wasn't involved. And, and there are several stories in the David. And, and by the way, the Bathsheba story, which completely reflects discreditably on him. Why would you tell such a story about an imagined hero? Um, so, so for David, I think a lot of it is, is probably uh, true. Let me just make one other <clears throat> comment. Then it is clear to you that David was a real historical character. Oh. Sure. Your presentation was fabulous. That was a great talk. Thank you. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more about uh, the relationship between David and Avshalom and how that shaped David? And sec, sec, second question, Dave. So David has a couple of sons. And this is actually, it also raises an interesting sub-question. David has a couple of sons. Firstborn son is named Amnon. All right? Now, remember, David has more than one wife, um, to put it mildly. Uh, not as many as Solomon, but, but more than us. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I hope. Um, Amnon is his firstborn. So here's Amnon, and here's Avshalom, who's his half-brother, right, from a different mother. Avshalom has a sister named Tamar. They're full siblings. Amnon is a half-brother. Amnon conceives a great lust for Tamar. He wants her, but she doesn't want to sleep with him, so he tricks her and rapes her. Now, 
again, the psychological realism of the David story is very powerful. It says once he rapes her, he hates her with as hatred that is as great as the lust he felt before. Again, not, I mean, you, ha- you feel as though this is real. Avshalom, having seen this, hates Amnon and wants to kill him. So, Dan David is passive through all. He does nothing. He doesn't punish Amnon. The reason that this is interesting is that in an early manuscript of the Bible, um, not in the one that we have, but, you know, there are several. There's an early Greek translation. There's the Qumran manuscripts. There are other ancient versions. It says that David didn't punish Amnon because he was his firstborn and he loved him which means that the only mention of David loving is in a manuscript of the Bible or a translation of the Bible that we don't have, that isn't our official version. So either it was added by someone who wanted David to love, or it dropped out, I mean, or it was there and, and got dropped out somehow. Anyway, I love the idea that the ambiguity of whether David could love or not goes all the way down to the textual level. It's not just in the meaning. So Avshalom kills Amnon, and David gets angry at Avshalom and sends him away. They have this estrangement. Eventually, Avshalom comes back, and he starts a rebellion against his father. Um, and Avshalom is handsome. He's described in, in, in very vain terms. He, he always has a retinue of people around him, and, but he's winning for a while, which makes you know that David had to have some enemies because you can't launch a successful rebellion against a king that everybody loves. Eventually... David says to his group, to his troops, put down the rebellion, but don't hurt Avshalom. Whatever you do, don't hurt Avshalom. Well, Joab, who's the head of David's troops, and is a, basically, he's a very interesting character, but a merciless killer. That's what he does. He's the head of, he's the general. Um, He finds Avshalom hanging from a tree, right? His hair, which he was very proud of, got entangled in a tree, and what does Joab do? He's, Joab says to the guy who finds him, why didn't you kill him? And the soldier says, but didn't you hear what King David said? He said, don't hurt him. And Joab like, laughs that off. So that's the most ridiculous thing in the world and kills him. David is crushed. You know Faulkner's book, Absalom, Absalom? That comes from this verse where David reacts. He says Absalom's name over and over again. I wish I had died in your stead. It's clear that David is emotionally devastated, in part probably because he knows that, it's his, that, that he bears a great deal of responsibility for this whole mess. And then Joab, in one of, the, one of what I find one of the most interesting scenes in the whole book, Joab comes to David. Right? This is the general who just killed Avshalom. He comes to the king and he says, cut this out. He says, don't you realize what you're doing? You're insulting all the troops who risked their lives to save you while you mourn for the guy who was trying to kill you. And if you want an army tomorrow, you better stop mourning the person they just saved you from and go out there and be a king again and thank them for saving you. And David does. So the power and the realism of the story is very, I mean, it's, uh, it's a good story. Anyway, so was that? That was a great answer, and my, but I did have a second question, and this is an important one. Which actor should be playing David? <laughs> okay, so I will give you my stock answer. Um, they have not, I mean, the guy's still working on the script, um, 
And, uh, and so, but I, my only answer is that it has to be someone with great physical charisma, like a Daniel Craig type person, that is, someone who sort of bursts off the screen in a way that you feel like, because remember, David was in an ancient world where if you weren't a charismatic warrior, you couldn't be king. So it has to be someone like that, the way Kirk Douglas used to be when he was younger. That is someone who has great physical charisma. But, but the truth is, so I've talked to people about this, and they say, well, what about this person? What about that person? And I realized how many actors I don't know. <laughs> so, so I'm not going to be the casting director. Um, in fact, I will just tell you, this was one thing that I was very conscious of. When I went to the first meeting for the, before we started to interview script writers, and they, brought, and they brought me to the meeting, um, and, uh, and, they, and the producer, the woman who's producing it for Warner Brothers, said, what do you think your role is in this? And I knew what she was basically answering is, how much of a nuisance are you going to be, right? <laughs> that I really, that was what I heard from what she said. So I said, I think my role is to help you make the movie as defensible as possible which is, I think, my role. If they're going to do something that's going to outrage the religious community or the Bible, I just have to let them know. They can still do it, but I have to let them know. But, but she didn't say to me, and who are your casting suggestions? <laughs> Go figure, you would think, but she didn't. So, yeah. I, I'm curious uh, your comments on this, because I've always been interested in the development of literature and writing. And if I remember the little I've learned... Uh, the Hebrew language or the Ugaritic languages, etc., a lot of people say the Hebrew language, as it later became, started more or less 900, 1000 BC, which is, let's call it, uh, around the Davidic uh, period. And I'm wondering whether uh, you think that uh, David, in a sense, is a more, uh, a more humanistic character, is really what you're saying. Uh, because all the previous characters are really written in a much different style. And how much you think the fact that, historically speaking, lots of writers and things develop when there are empires, you know, when the Greeks had there and the Romans had, and uh, let's say even England, etc., that civilizations grow, the writers come, the poets come when when there's kind of a king and a leader and a bunch of scribes and writers and stuff like that. We, because we don't, because our society is so different, we don't realize how much an elite, especially a moneyed elite, is required in order to get this kind of writing. And almost all the scholars that I read on this, and I, I really I defer to them because these are people who are Bible scholars, um, they all think that these are court historians who wrote the David story. And to be a court historian means basically your, your salary is paid by the king. Because it's not, you know, I, I mean, this is obvious, but it's not like you could sit in a cave in Israel and write a book and sell it. You know, I mean, it's not, this is, um, it's, it's, almost, it's a period like now. That is, then was before bookstores, and now we're after bookstores. Um, so there was no, so it was somehow tied to the court that would sustain and pay you. In fact, there's one, there are several novels about David, as you would expect, but there's one that is really, really good. Um, Of all the ones I read, some of them were better, some of them were worse, but there was only one that was extraordinary, and that one was by Stefan Heim, 
which called the King David Report. And Stefan Heim was a, he was originally American, but he wrote most of his life in East Germany when it was a communist regime. And so he knows what it is to live in an authoritarian place. And he is the court historian who's writing the King David Report. And he's writing about, it's obviously a commentary on East Germany, but he's writing about what's going on in King David's time. And, and sometimes he oversteps a little bit and the court pulls him back. No, 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 no. You got that wrong. You can't say it that way. You have to say it this way. And my favorite, one of my favorite lines is that the, his, his like liaison to the king, the one who constantly goes through his stuff, says, if you know as much as I think you know, then you know too much. So, yeah, I think you need that kind of court world to produce that kind of writing. And before that, it wasn't, just wasn't possible. So, yeah. You mentioned um, near the beginning of the talk, uh, David's first words were, what will be given to the man uh, who can defeat Goliath? And if I'm not mistaken, he repeats the question again um, and gets the same answer. What do you think... If you, could, if you could elaborate on the significance of that and what it means. Um. My, I mean, there are two, I think there are two different ways to see it. One is to see it the way the writer sees it. That is, I'm setting up for you who the character is. So you should know that, yes, he does repeat it. You should know that this is someone who's very intent on getting what he thinks he deserves. There's that. But I think there's also the recognition that as much confidence as David has, um, Goliath is, you know, supposed to be fearsome. And by the way, I just, I mean, I hate to throw a monkey wrench into the proceedings, but according to the book of Chronicles, it was someone else who defeated Goliath. I just want you to know that. It has a different name for who defeated Goliath. But let's just assume David did it. Um, I think that's the other part of it, is that David's not, the repetition is, I want to make sure that this is worth the risk to my life, because obviously... You know, Goliath had to be formidable and he had to be frightening and no one in Israel would challenge him. So I think David's not being completely reckless, but it also does establish that David is someone who again and again and again um, sort of he he manages to extract the maximum from the situation for his own good. To the end of our time with. uh, Oh, there's one. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just have a quick one. Is there historical evidence that uh, David wrote some or all of the Psalms? And, and if there is none, do, uh, what is your opinion? No historical evidence that David wrote any of the Psalms. The phrase means more le David, which is the Hebrew phrase, a Psalm of David could mean a Psalm to David. It doesn't necessarily mean a Psalm by David. Some of them he clearly didn't write because they refer to events after David died. But there is this tradition that David was a musician and a psalmist. There is mention in the text itself that David composed the eulogy for Jonathan and Saul. And also there's another psalm towards the end of the book that seems stuck in. So it's not impossible, but it's certainly not certain. That's why in the book I used the psalms when I thought they illuminated David's life, but I didn't assume that he wrote them all. Let, let me apologize again to you. I didn't see you there on that side of the stage. Um, you know, uh, this has been a wonderful presentation, has it not? And before we... But, I, was, I was going to say that before we thank uh, Rabbi Volpe, um, I, I ran into someone on the, in the way here who said, I am so glad we're doing a book signing. 
over the years that you've been doing this um, Taubman Symposia, I have built myself a very wonderful Judaic studies library. So I always come for the book. Here is the book. It's relatively hot off the press. Um, And it's short. uh, And it's in a wonderful series called Jewish Lives uh, by Yale University Press. So uh, Rabbi Volpe uh, will be... um, at the um, foyer of the auditorium in just a moment to sign books that you can purchase from our very, very good friends at the Book Den. So now let's thank David Volpe for this wonderful presentation. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.